brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. This show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men, by men of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit CrateClub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off for your subscription. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live, so go to CrateClub.us, use the coupon code SOFREP, and get 20% off either the seasonal or annual subscription. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off. Sign up now. We have uh, the author of War Story, David Richardson, coming in studio. Uh, Jack is here with me. I mean, Scotto, of course. And uh, we have Dennis here for the first time, who's going to be taking over for me on production duties. I mean, you technically were here last time, but I figured the audience could get acclimated with you since you kind of shadowed everything. I was. I figured I would sit back, learn from the master. Now, uh, you did a phenomenal job, by the way. I want the audience to know that. Thanks, man. Appreciate Laid it out perfectly. Great job, Ian. Great job. It really was. I mean, he, he gave me the Bible. Um, <laughs> not literally the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. But the, the radio Bible um, came in here. Showed me exactly what to do, told me how the ropes are run, and hopefully it's a seamless transition from you to me. Yeah, I think it will be. I mean, if you, if you guys are hearing this show and it sounds good, you're going to be the one who edits and produces the whole thing. So if it sounds correct, you know, in terms of, like, the whole format that is thanks to this guy. Um, with that, let's get into some different things going on. Um, I have some emails. I was going to mention that uh, I listened to Tulsi Gabbard on Joe Rogan's podcast. She was on recently? Yeah, she was on for, I mean, it was like a big three-hour interview. I've listened to probably two-thirds of it so far. I wasn't as familiar with her as you, and I have to say, I mean, I like a lot of the things she said on foreign policy, and it does seem like there's a lot of unfair criticism of her being a, like, supporter of Assad, which I think people probably said the same about you, right? They did. Just because you met with him. They did. Um, I mean, it's just one of those questions that like every, let's say anti-dictator, anti, uh, anti-Saddam action, every anti-Russian action is not necessarily by default an, uh, a pro-American action. Um, like right now we're ramping up to go to war with Iran by all indicators, which we're going to get into because we have an email, but every anti-Iran action is not necessarily pro-American. You have to keep that in mind. If we get bogged down in another 15 year war over there, that's not a good thing for us. No. Um, and we're going to get right into that in a little bit because we have an email about that. And I know you wrote an article about that. Um, the other thing I was going to mention real quick is speaking of people running for president, Mayor de Blasio, the day that we're recording this, just threw his hat in the race. Did you see the cover of the New York Post? Yes, yeah, yeah. Where it's just a bunch of faces laughing? I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't expect him to do very well. 
yeah, no one, no, I mean, he doesn't have, he doesn't have any Wasta on the national stage, you know, I don't think anyone really gives a shit. I'd say in New York State as a whole, he's not very well liked. I mean, he did get elected in the city and reelected, but. Yeah. But I mean, then again, we all, I mean, Donald Trump is somebody who could, who could never get elected mayor of New York because people knew, people in New York knew him too well. Yeah. But he got himself elected as president. So uh, the dynamics are weird. All right. Well, with that, we'll get into some emails here. And the first one I'll cover does have to do with Iran. Uh, you know, because as I said, you just wrote a piece for Newswrap titled America's, uh, America's War Drums Beat for Iran. And that's exactly what this email is about. This one's from Thomas, of course, sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. Jack, with the movement of the IRG to the state-sponsored terror list and the announcement of a carrier strike force and bombers headed over to the Middle East because of, a, of a possible Iranian plots, add the recent sabotage of Saudi oilers, are the war drums beating louder here? And then he says, Ian, sorry to see you go. Good luck with future endeavors. Thank you so much, Thomas. Uh, and then as for that question. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think Thomas put all the chess pieces together there and can see what's going on. Um, you have these things happening in, in rapid succession. Um, they pushed Mattis out, who was a big impotent to any kind of attack on Iran. He wasn't going to, he wasn't about expanding the wars, right? We put the IRGC on the foreign terrorist organization list, the FTO, which makes it a lot easier to attack them, right? They can be attacked under the, um, probably right under, they'll, they'll fold it right under the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force that we passed after uh, 9-11. And it's been used to prosecute the entire war on terror uh, from Yemen to Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria. So then you have these other things happening. Um, Israel telling the United States that we have intelligence that Iran is plotting an attack against you guys. There's no proof of that whatsoever. It's just like some innuendo. It's about as credible as the yellow cake claims in Iraq. Um, in response, we send a carrier group into the Persian Gulf, a very, very provocative action, um, but not necessarily wrong in of itself. But you can see that we're trying to escalate tensions. We're trying to provoke things there. Uh, then you have these sabotage uh, incidents of sabotage against oil tankers in the UAE, um, against Saudi oil tankers off the coast of the UAE, and then actual oil tankers belonging to the UAE. Um, who is behind that sabotage? We don't know, but publicly Iran is catching the blame for it. So we can see all of these things happening in fairly rapid succession of one, one another. And I honestly think that um, John Bolton and his boys are trying to provoke a sort of Gulf of Tonkin type uh, situation, uh, which was what led to the escalation of the Vietnam War under the Nixon administration. Uh, so I think, you know, if you keep pushing and pushing the Iranian regime, you're basically just waiting for them to fuck up, to make a, a, a false start or a bad move, to screw something up. And then we find ourselves very quickly into some sort of a shooting war which will probably start with it'll they'll sell it to the American public as limited strikes against IRGC targets in Iran where it goes from there i mean once we we initiate a war with Iran it's going to plunge that entire region into chaos all over again um, and where that war ends we have no idea the iranians almost certainly have sleeper cells here in the United States. And I guarantee you, if it becomes an existential crisis for the Iranian regime, they will launch attacks against soft targets in the West. Again, I, I, I cannot tell you or predict exactly how it's all going to go down. No one can. And that's the scary thing about it. Like, we don't know where the bottom is. 
And that's what I see happening right now. Yeah, scary things. And, and read the piece as well on NewsRep, America's War Drums Beat for Iran. It's up right now. You just wrote that, or it just went up at Yesterday least. I wrote it, yeah. Yeah, so that'll be up, uh, or it is up right now, on thenewsrep.com. Uh, second email is from Matthew Ryan. First off, I would just like to say that I love the work that you guys do at NewsRep. Keep up the good work. Second, I want to wish Ian well in his future endeavors away from NewsRep, uh, as well as tell Jack that I just finished Murphy's Law, and I cool. really enjoyed it. Yeah, we're getting a lot of that. Thank uh, you. Finally, I have a question that hopefully Jack can answer. You have referenced, quote, checkpoint pasta multiple times when talking about Somalia, but I can't find anything about it on the Internet. It sounds like the Italians were doing some shady stuff in Somalia at the time. Can you please explain what checkpoint pasta was? This seems like something that would make a good article for Jack to write, given his history of writing stories about obscure military history that nobody knows about, like Debt K, Debt A, Blue Light, and the 94 Panama prison riot. Thanks, Matt Ryan. Yeah, um, it could be a topic. Checkpoint pasta was just a uh, checkpoint that was manned by the Italian forces in Somalia back in in like 93 when all that stuff was going down. And um, there were Italian special forces there. And uh, the checkpoint came under attack at one point. There was some kind of firefight. And I would have to do a little bit more research. Like you should be able to find some information online if you look for it. and, uh, yeah, so I'd have to research that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other smaller actions that would be interesting to research. But, yeah, that's one of them. Um, I know the people I could go and talk to about it or I could even get um, uh, – what was his name? Paolo Palumbo. He, he wrote an entire book about the Italian Special Forces Unit, like their equivalent of Delta Force, their counterterrorism unit. Um, but it's only available in Italian. I have a copy mm. of it, but I, I can – I, my Italian's not so good. I can't really read it. I could ask him. He, he's written articles for us have, in the past. Have Benny translate it. No. I, I, could, I could ask him to write an article for us about it. So, yeah, that's not a bad suggestion. That would be cool. Uh, all right. And then one last one here from uh, Ona. Uh, hey, guys, who writes to us all the time. Uh, hey, guys, I have two questions for Jack regarding the 2012 Benghazi attack. Uh, and he cites this article from military.com. I was which, reading it yesterday. Yeah. So it's called Untold Heroes uh, and Behind Marines Secret Navy Cross Benghazi. Is that the one yeah. that you've seen? Okay. Uh, so two questions here. Question one, it tells us of an infantry assault Marine assigned to a Delta detachment. Asked out of ignorance alone and no disrespect, what can a Marine bring to a group of Delta guys? Question two, the article says they carried the bodies of the dead down a ladder. In the book 13 Hours, we're told by one of the authors the bodies were thrown over the edge of the roof. What's your take on this discrepancy? Thanks, Jack. And he says, I've listened to Murphy's Law twice now. I mean, that's a lot of listening to you, to listen to the whole book twice. Uh, And everyone should get the book. All the best for the future to you, Ian. Thank you so much. And that's from Ona. Well, thanks for the the kind words. Um, I've heard a couple people who are like, I'm rereading your book. It's like very humbling and flattering to hear all that, you know? There's very few books, to be honest, I've read twice. I've never listened to a book twice. And I've had a lot of people tell me like this is unlike every other military memoir I've read, which, I mean, it's touching for me personally. I agree. Um, So thank you for that. Um, in regards to his question, um, what can a Marine bring to a unit like Delta Force? Well, I would humbly go back and recommend two soft rep radio episodes done with Todd Apolsky, and you will find out. Todd was a uh, Marine who went and served as a Delta operator. He was a uh, troop commander, 
And before um, we ever had him on the show, I asked around, like, hey, is this guy legit? And, you know, my contacts got back to me. He says, yes, he was a JSOC operator, and he was a good dude, and we liked him. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah. He's invited me over to uh, Costa Rica yeah, with his training yeah. facility. Um, so I, I think that there, there's that. There are a lot of Marines who, you know, they bring a lot to the table, but also it's part of an exchange it's an exchange of ideas as well. So you're bringing a Marine in, you're letting him serve in the unit, and then you're sending him back. So it, there's, um, there can be some exchange of lessons learned as well. You know, I remember Todd said, I, um, you know, when he came back from his tour there, he said the biggest lesson I learned was relationships. And it wasn't about like, you know, cool guy blowing down doors and shooting people in the face. He said it was about the importance of maintaining and building relationships. So there's a, there's a little takeaway from that. As far as what happened in Benghazi with a different, this is a different Marine um, named uh, Jolly Tate, as was in the military.com article, names him, who was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross for his actions at Benghazi. So an, another Marine who was um, serving in the unit uh, was one of two unit members who responded to what happened in Benghazi, and they got to the annex after the initial attack was over at the embassy. They got to the annex just around i think at the uh, just as the the mortars were falling on the on the compound and i don't think there's a discrepancy i think what happened was that there was an injured grs uh service member so grs what is the cia protective staff guys that you can go back what two interviews back and listen to our podcast with um tom pakora who was one of those cia protective guys and you learn all about what they do um, one of them was injured up on the rooftop um, from the mortar that fell and killed Glenn Doherty, uh, another GRS guy, a former Navy SEAL who we knew. Um, I believe the Marine, the Marine who was serving as a JSOC operator, tied that injured GRS dude to his back, like with rope, <laughs> as I understand it, and climbed down the ladder, carrying him down. I think the bodies of the dead were thrown off of the roof to get them down to the bottom. I, I, now, we, we can ask um, Chris Peranto and, and get to the bottom of that one, but I believe that's where the discrepancy is. I think the dead were dropped to the bottom to get them down off the roof, and I think the guy who was injured was carried down. Interesting. All right, so that somewhat answers it. Maybe Chris Perano could give a full answer to that since we talk to him regularly. And I guess that's it. The only other thing that I was wondering before we get over to David Richardson, or not wondering, I think for the listeners, since you're going to be, you know, an integral part of this podcast, people might be wondering your background, Dennis, and what you've done. Uh, So, went to college for production, stuff like that. Went to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting to further that along. I've been at SiriusXM. I know you were there for quite a while. Um, So, we probably crossed paths Years ago. It's such a big. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't. I mean, it's not like either of us stand out. No, but I mean, I, Um, I, but I also know uh, Ron Bennington. Which, which I worked on the Bennington show, which was a blast. So if Ron's listening, thank you for the opportunity. Um, And then I was over at CBS Sports Radio for three and a half years, I want to say. And then really, um, live sports radio is, is a whole nother animal, as we've talked off air. So, getting used to that and then i worked with uh taz the former professional wrestler i did his live daily uh video and audio show which we turned into he gets mad if you say podcast because it's not a podcast because it's live 
but his live audio video. So I did the turnaround for that. And that was an opportunity that was otherworldly. So was doing that and then saw the ad for this, applied, got the gig, and here we are. So that's what got me to right here, right now. Awesome. Happy to be aboard, by the way. I should. I feel like I should mention that. Oh, yeah, man. No, this is cool, and, and I'm glad they have someone of your experience, you know, taking over. I, so. I told Nick I wanted this transition to be as seamless as possible, so hopefully I can fill Ian's shoes for the fans listening. If I can't, feel free to, <laughs> to let me know. I'm sure they will. Where can they? Well, do you have Twitter, Instagram? I do What's have Twitter. Uh, I do it all. I, see, I'm not very active. I'll be active with the, with the show's Twitter and um, Instagram, obviously. But my own personal Twitter is at Dennis underscore Jones 44 because there's 43 other Dennis Joneses. <laughs> and the Instagram is the same. So Dennis underscore Jones 44. Cool, man. Well, you know, excited to have you on board. And right now we're going to get over to David Richardson. Uh, his new book, once again, is War Story. Uh, so let's get right into it with David joining us in studio. In studio with us for the first time, David Richardson, Marine combat veteran, painter, and the author of his novel, War Story, which is based around a Marine and an Iraqi Defense Forces lieutenant colonel willing to put their lives on the line and come together in a pursuit for an ideal. And the, the interesting thing about this book is it's like two guys from completely separate cultures coming together through war. Indeed, it and is, yeah. it seems like the American might loosely be based off you as a painter and... Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, full disclosure, most uh, first novels, uh, you may be able to test this for me, <laughs> are autobi- autobiographical. This one's probably 80%. And the reason is, you know, you start writing and you've got a bunch of stuff you want to dump, uh, and you kind of get it out in the first novel. That way your second, third, fourth, and fifth novels are actually fiction uh, rather than so much heavy uh, autobiography. autobiography. So, yeah, it is autobiographical. Uh, and some of the char- most of the characters are based on uh, real people. I think it's a good thing, though. I mean, r- writing fiction, uh, and when you write when you write fiction, to draw on your own experiences rather than you know. And I, I've done both, of course, but um, as opposed to like doing research, a lot of novelists go out and do tons and tons of research and pour that into their book. But I mean, doesn't it bring something special to it when you're drawing in your own personal experiences and observations? Uh, yeah, I, I, indeed it does, and I think uh, there's a, because there's a tone that you can give it. Uh, essentially, you can people can read between the lines when it's your <laughs> yeah. own experience because you give it that tone. Um, I was chatting with somebody the other day, and one of the biggest bestseller genres out there is uh, like young adult fiction, uh, and there's guys my age writing young adult fiction. I don't know how they pull that off. Me neither. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> or how people read it at our age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or how people read it. So I don't know. I could read my book, I think, you know, and get something from it at, at the age I am. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, having lived it uh, helped me lend a tone and allows people to kind of read between the lines and match things up. Some things I, I left a lot out. Uh, but I, I think that part that I left out gets in there by inference. Had I used a lot of adjectives, verbs, and been a little bit more wordy, it probably would have been 800 pages and nobody would have read it. So I chopped it down to 400, got rid of the uh, adjectives and adverbs, and that's what you got. And you were saying to me prior to us recording, there's a reason that you chose not to do a memoir, not to do an autobiography. Yeah, so I, the, the reason I didn't do an autobiography was because it was my first uh, foray into writing. And I kind of wanted to show that I could, I could write a novel, which is uh, 
a lot harder than writing an autobiography. I mean, there's a this is a golden fleece novel. You know, essentially you have the hero that goes away, uh, and and he comes back with an answer to a question, or whether it's gold, he comes back with, or whatever it is, comes back with a question. It's hard to build uh, that in a novel. It's much easier to write a linear memoir. Um, and, you know, having not written before, I was afraid if I wrote an autobiography, uh, it would have been something like, you know, the autobiography of Dave Richardson, uh, you know, subtitled, Who Gives a Damn? Uh, so uh, I wanted people to actually read the thing and get through it. I tried to make it a page turner, and that's why I wrote a novel vice a memoir. Was the cover drawn by you? Because I, I know your background in art, so. So indeed it was. Uh, the cover. It's a great cover. Well, thank you. Uh, the cover, um, I when I was in Ramadi, the first time I went on patrol, I looked up to see uh, a billboard uh, painted on what looked to me like a piece of plywood of a man hoisting a barbell over his head. Uh, and over the months, that billboard dis- dis- disintegrated essentially from random gunfire. Uh, so when I came back, uh, I, I wrote the book Somebody read the book, and they said, you should do paintings of Muscle Man. And I kind of scratched my head. And the next day, I called him back, and I said, I got it. I'm going to do Muscle Man, but I'm going to do it in a series of three paintings. I'm going to have the one I saw in January of 2006 that wasn't very shot up, the one from 2000 or uh, March 2006, which is that one on the cover, which is kind of shot up, and then the one from May of 2006, which is essentially there wasn't much left of it. So I painted it, and then eventually I put it on the cover of the novel. As a novelist, what was uh, I, I think it's kind of clear in one sense, but there's clearly some sort of alliteration you were going towards with, uh, you know, that, that it disintegrates over time. Oh, indeed, yeah. <laughs> and then there's two, there's two pieces of that. So uh, it disintegrated over time, which kind of showed what was happening in Iraq overall, uh, but what, what was happening specifically in Ramadi uh, between probably the summer of 2005 or late 2004, right on through the Sunni awakening uh, soon after I left in, in late 2006. Uh, but there's also another piece of that, uh, The Great Gatsby, uh, Dr. Eckelberg sign, guy with the glasses. He's a, he's a he's a eye doctor, and as they're driving out to Long Island, I think it is. There's that sign staring at them, and it's mentioned a couple times by F. Scott F. Scott Fitzgerald. I didn't realize I had used that until later. I realized, oh yeah, that's the that's the parallel. <laughs> there. So yeah, yeah, two different things: one Ramadi disintegrating, and the other uh, the Great Gatsby. I had you know a similar experience with Missoul and going there in 2005, and it was pretty beat up. Then going back in 2009, and it was really beat up. And now I haven't been back there since, but I mean. We all know what happened in Mosul. I mean, that, that place is just leveled now. I don't think we're going to have the Vietnam experience that John McCain had, where we go back to Hanoi and, you know, it actually looks decent. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not going to happen in the next 30 years. Yeah. I think it's going to be torn up for a while. I've often imagined, you know, if, you know, you and I flew over there for a vacation, you know, what it would look like. Uh, it's definitely not uh, what our grandfathers or my father would have seen if he had gone back to say uh berlin berlin in you know 1952 where they had actually cleaned it up from what it was in 1945 or uh japan for that matter but uh yeah we're not going to experience that i think it's going to stay like it is which is kind of sad actually to rewind a little bit can you tell us a little bit about 
your own experience? How, like, how did this journey begin that eventually led to the novel with you joining the Marine Corps? And uh... So um, I joined the Marine Corps in 1991. I was actually painting in Chicago. Um, I went to the Army, and uh, they said, well, we can't guarantee that you know, we can, you'll, you'll be carrying a rifle in combat. I went to the Navy. They kind of gave me a little bit of the runaround. And I went to the Marine Corps, and they said... You're the kind of guy we're looking for. Uh, so I joined the Marine Corps. I was still painting when I, when I was in the Marine Corps, which my peers found somewhat odd. But what's, what's different about that is over time, they all kind of accepted it. and was like, yeah, hey, Richard's a bit of an oddball. Uh, he's a pretty good Marine, and like, he paints. Like Private Joker. Yeah, a little bit like that. So, and, and they kind of accepted that. Uh, and as time went on, you know, I, I've ended up uh, just the book takes begins – as I get to the George, or this character gets to the George Washington University, where he is a professor of naval science, uh, which is a highfalutin term because I don't have an advanced degree, and I always kind of chuckled when I looked at uh, my card and it said I was a professor. Uh, I was just a guy that had read a lot of books, uh, and so I taught there, and that's right when the war was kicking off, uh, and like. Most Marines, most Rangers, most guys in the 82nd Airborne, when there's a war on, they want to be there. So uh, the autobiographical part of the novel is where uh, I, I, I pick up and he's trying to get to war and he's painting uh, and showing his work in Washington, D.C. And he runs afoul with uh, uh, some art galleries that owe him money. So he goes and gets a lawyer and he goes on. And eventually he, he goes to Camp Lejeune and then goes on to the war. Uh, also, in the first part of the novel, uh, I introduced the character of uh, Colonel Abdul Majid, uh, who I knew Majid, and, and Majid told me what happened to him before we met, all the way back to the 80s when they were in the Iran-Iraq War, then the first Gulf War, uh, and then what I call uh, you know, the, the, the wars of 9-11. Uh, so he kind of told me that, and I kind of captured that in the first half of the book. Uh, and it goes on from there. We meet, and, and we kind of become fast friends and uh, kind of get the mission done. So then what was your your experience, again, that bleeds into this novel um, in Ramadi working with Majid? So that, that's my experience with them. Of course, there's a big cultural uh, divide. Uh, and my experience with them was they were undermanned, undertrained, and undersupported. And I, be, I mean by that, the, the war... Uh, as all wars since uh, World War II and the Korean War, wars are always political. Uh, but I think after World War II, and I, I honestly believe the Korean War is the real first modern or postmodern war because it is so political. Uh, there's many political considerations we had, to con- we had to look at in Korea that we didn't have to look at in World War II. So there was a lot of political things going on in uh, the Iraqi army. The struggle between the Sunnis, the Kurds, and the Shias. That was always a dynamic. Uh, Majid was a professional soldier, uh, so I was able to relate to him on that level. And I was also able to relate to him because he was, he was struggling so hard to keep his unit together. So that dynamic all kind of came together. And there was, there was one odd thing, I think, about Majid and I. Um, <laughs> Majid was surprised that I could talk about uh, the Old Testament, and we don't realize how much the uh, uh, Muslim culture is actually steeped in the Old Testament. Yeah, and we had a conversation one time that could would have may, may have gotten bad if I had been a religious fanatic, or wouldn't have gone anywhere had I not known anything about the Old Testament. And that focused on uh, who was the sacrifice of Abraham. Was it Ishmael, as he said, 
or was it Isaac as you know essentially Christianity and uh, Judaism believes? I didn't make it a big deal. He said it was Ishmael, and I left it at that. <laughs> so you kind of get the dynamic, and we both like to. I smoke cigars, he smokes cigarettes, and we both drank tea. Uh, so we kind of had a pretty good good dynamic. And one thing I never did to him, uh, I, I never demeaned him in any way uh, because they weren't his unit wasn't that great. That's what we were there for. Uh, and I think he sensed that. It was kind of like reading between the lines. I, I understood his plight. I don't know how. I think it was from reading so much about the Confederate Army, probably. But I understood his plight with an undermanned, uh, under-equipped army that had too big of a mission uh, to complete. They had that incredible amount of responsibility to try to stop their country from coming apart at the seams. But as you said, like, and I, had, I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday. Their government was so corrupt. They were getting no bullets. They were getting no fuel, not even food and water. Like how, I mean, you're, you were a Marine, you know, you know, without a logistics line, how long is the fight going to last? Right. They didn't have any of that. And that really comes out in the book, by the way. In fact, in fact, that's the mystery in the book. There's a thing about American dollar bills and all, remember the pallet of hundred dollar bills that got lost? The one that uh, was drawn from the federal reserve. Yeah, and, and I think I calculated it. the money. It was like it was a, it was I can't remember. It was trillions of dollars that just got lost on a pallet somewhere. Got lost, yeah. Right, and it floated into Iraq. I don't know what happened to it. But yeah, they had horrible problems. There were there, there were warehouses full of gear that we had given them that they never saw. I don't know what happened to it. There would there were vehicles coming into the country uh, that nobody accounted for. So. Uh, I don't know what the parallel is, but imagining, I just can't imagine what it's just flooding someplace with a, with a ton of cash and a ton of equipment that had no way to absorb it, and they really didn't have the culture to absorb it. Uh, so they really struggled with that, getting paid. There's a whole thing about ghost Jundi, which essentially means yeah. Jundi you have on the books uh, you still have on the books, although they're dead or they deserted, the, and you're still the commander's twelve-year-old daughter is on the payroll. Right, right. Yeah. So you're collecting the money for them, and there was really no accountability. They they didn't have, uh, you know, they couldn't go to the cash machine. They had to drive to Baghdad to the and get a sandbag, literally get a sandbag full of money. Yeah. You remember the bag full of money? Yeah. <laughs> so and they would come back, and they would have these bag full of monies, and other advisors. I wasn't really like this, uh, you know, would really dig into the shit about that. I never said a word. And it's not like I condoned all that stuff. Look, it was a different culture. They had their own way of doing business. We've got our own way of doing business that looks kind of funny to foreigners. And some of it can be viewed as corruption and nepotism and all that. They had their own version of it. I never dug into it. I just let it be. I tried to get him to reduce his ghost unity that has comes out in the book. But I didn't criticize for the, him for that, and I didn't demean him for that. What, what was the mission you guys were trying to accomplish? Because this was early on in the war, you said, right? Like 2004? It was 2006. Okay. Uh, so uh, in 2006, we were just trying to get our head out of our ass. Uh, that's <laughs> really what we were trying to do. Uh, there's, a, there's a great scene in uh, Apocalypse Now where uh, Martin Sheen shows up, and he's at this base in Vietnam, and there's a broken-down helicopter, and there's some Playboy bunnies in there, and they're, they're kind of stranded, you know, so no telling what's going on. And, and Martin Sheen's walking in the rain, and he's smoking a cigarette or something, and he says to some trooper, he's like, hey, who's in charge here? And he looks at him and goes, shit, sir, I thought you were. That, there was a little bit of that going on in Ramadi uh, when we got there. So we, we flew in, and our mission was to team up with, uh, train, and fight alongside... Uh, the Iraqi soldiers, and specifically Colonel Majid's battalion, 
So we went to uh, Ramadi. Uh, we weren't in Camp Ramadi. We were actually outside the fence. Uh, and that's what we did in Ramadi. And then we moved to Fallujah. And, and when I say that was our mission, uh, no one told us how to do that mission. Uh, in, in our case, we found out we were going in October. We kept waiting for the team to get together or the band to get back together. Uh, and we didn't get together till the 1st of December, and we left on 12 January. So there's only six weeks that my team got to know each other, and we flew in and did this mission. Uh, and then the other thing is no one really told us what to do. I mean, of course, I was a professional soldier. I was a major but I remember my lieutenants looking at me and saying, <laughs> sir, what the fuck? You know, how are we going to do this? Uh, and I said, look, man, you've been trained by the Marine Corps. You've gone to the basic school. All of us know the basics of being riflemen. We will get this done. You know the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship? Right. and that's what we're going to use. And, and, you know, and you know, instead of looking at me like I had a dick going on my forehead, they kind of gave me the thumbs up and said, Roger, sir, that sounds like a reasonable plan. But that was our plan. Well, that's that, it. That was going to be my next question, actually. And I, I don't mean this as a, as a cheap shot at, at the Marines uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but there were a lot of units... I mean, the bulk of our military, they went over there to train, equip, advise their Iraqi counterparts. And this was traditionally a special forces mission. You have a highly trained special forces team to go and do these missions. And because of the, the numbers of, of Iraqis we were working with, the conventional forces, conventional American forces, um, subsumed the bulk of that mission. And I just wanted to ask you what that was like to have Marines doing this. I mean, was it something that they, they had a difficult time adapting to, or did they... I, I noticed that the younger conventional troops jumped into it really easily, and right. that it was kind of the older institutionalized ones that had problems with it. Yeah, so I think you're getting at the difference between a tight-ass Marine and... <laughs> uh, I mean, you've known the type. You're, sure. You're a ranger. You know the types. Uh, and somebody that can swing a little bit yeah uh, and you know kind of make it happen in a fuzzy situation and there were varying degrees of that in the marine corps some of us were kind of i mean i was a little bit of an oddball anywhere I, anyway i was a painter you know uh and i went and i kind of did this mission and you know later on people told me like hey richard i heard about you know what a good job you did and i kind of scratched my head and i thought well shit i was just there doing my job some guys couldn't hack it uh, some guys went over the top about trying to stop corruption, you know, or just training the Iraqis and letting them go out into combat by themselves. I saw that in both the Army and the Marine Corps. So that was a lot personality driven. Uh, and there wasn't, not, there wasn't a whole lot of selection, like who's kooky enough to go get this done <laughs> and make it happen right? Uh, because if, if you're looking at a guy that's very concerned about his career Getting the right slot, you know, whether it be battalion XO or the operations officer, uh, overly concerned about those things, he's probably not going to do real well. But if you take a guy who's maybe done a few shady th things, whether it's inside <laughs> the Marine Corps or outside the Marine Corps, put him in that situation, and he's, and he's mature. Hell, I was 40 years old. We just got it done, and we kind of made it up as we went. Some of those guys who are, like, all dressed right, dressed, like, they just can't handle the like oh my god these guys don't pull security you know they we can't we, we have them shoot their ak's they're not on paper uh, these dudes don't even have compasses what right. the fuck yeah you look they're, 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 they're they can load and shoot their rifle as long as they're not shooting at each other or <laughs> shooting at all the civilians we point them in a the general direction and get them going uh you know they wore six different types of uniforms uh that you know that freaked some people out they didn't pt did you ever see them doing jumping jacks there's a video online that shows 10 iraqi troops and bless their hearts 
Yeah, and they're all over I guarantee the if I yeah. said right now, if I got us all in formation, we could all do pretty much the same type of jumping jack. They Ten different... Iraqi soldiers did 10 different types of jump, jumping jacks. That's just not part of their culture. <laughs> but, you know, kind of going on a patrol, picking yourself up a chicken, carrying it back, and coming back with a watermelon, and come back with the guy you were looking for, they could do that. And that's all I really wanted. I was not trying to make them Marines. I wasn't trying to make them Army Rangers uh, or, or Navy SEALs. I was there to train them to get these basic things mm-hmm. done, uh, despite the fact that they lacked a lot of the gear. Uh, I mean, you know, they didn't have any RPGs. All they had were pistols and AK-47s. We, we didn't even give them grenades. Uh, so they didn't have any of that stuff. You know, we had plenty of that type of gear, and they didn't. Uh, most of them didn't have uh, sappy plates. Eventually, they got some type of sappy plates. Um, some of the, most of the officers, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the officers took their sappy plates out, and that's where they put the uh, American money or the uh, uh, money they got extra from the MOD, by the way, <laughs> which was definitely uh, the, uh, a problem if you got shot in the chest and you didn't have your sappy plate in. Instead, you had you know American money in there or Iraqi money, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, if you're a real tight ass, it, it was not the job for you, I guess what I'm trying to say. And I wasn't a real tight ass, and I think most of my buddies uh, could attest, yeah, Richardson wasn't too much of a tight ass. So then what was the, the genesis of the novel? I mean, this was an experience you had that obviously, you know, it meant a lot to you. It, it resonated with you, probably an important moment in your life that you wanted to capture in a book. Yeah, indeed it did. Uh, so I had had an art show here in New York City uh, that didn't go how I wanted it to go. So I decided, well, I'm going to promote my paintings. I'm going to write a book about it. I got about a month into the book, and I said, the book is not going to be about promoting your paintings. The book is going to be about something else. And then I kind of went off on a stream of consciousness. Eventually, I figured out I was trying to answer the question for myself, a question that probably drove me into the service and got me, initially as a kid, got me interested in the military and war, drove me into the service, and I'd been trying to answer uh, which is why is man fascinated by war? If you go to the toy store right now, about a quarter of the toys, whether it's camouflaged as Cap- Captain America or it's an actual army man, are about some type of warfare. Same with games, same with films, same with literature. We are fascinated by war. I tried to get to the bottom of that in my novel, and I think I did, actually. It took a lot of thinking. I did not try to answer the question, you know, why is war so horrible? Uh, you know, why does man kill man? Those are questions, you know, why do we go to war? Those are questions asked by somebody else, and I think in many cases satisfactorily answered by somebody else. I picked that question uh, because it's a question that I had asked myself kind of unconsciously over the years, uh, and I'd never see asked. No one ever asked, why are we fascinated by war? I think we're afraid to ask it yeah, because yeah. once you ask the question, first of all, you have to acknowledge that indeed we are, and it's hard to... Um, deny that. And then answering the question, you start opening some Jungian doors that, uh, that in some cases might be better off left shut. And as horrible as war is, and we all know it's horrible, you know, just stating the obvious, there's still this undeniable romanticism around it. Right. We're, we're fascinated by it. And uh, the reason is, and this is not a spoiler or anything, is because just like the Medal of Honor, winner I met the other day, I went back and I read about what he had done. And I thought to myself, well, shit, I don't know if I would have done that myself. (laughs) Um, But there are moments of uh, uh, 
courage demonstrated in war, and war is likely our most ferocious and greatest, I don't want to call it game, uh, but, but, but uh, endeavor, uh, and, but there are um, unselfish acts of courage in war that lend dignity to the dung heap that is war. That is what we're fascinated with. We're fascinated with young guys that'll get up, get off their ass, being shot at, and go save their buddy. Um, and that's what this guy that I met the other day did. We're fascinated by men like Chesty Puller who repeatedly uh, demonstrate leadership uh, in combat, sustained leadership in combat. Uh, both of those things are heroic deeds. And that's why we, we, we keep reading about war and we keep looking at it on TV. We keep playing games of war. We keep reading about war. Uh, and we keep, playing, we keep playing with toys about war. I think it's true now maybe than ever before. There's this search in our society for authenticity. And in war, there's this authentic experience that there's nowhere to hide. You have those do-or-die moments where you have to throw yourself in front of the bullets. You have to go and do these brave things. And it's not like there's a place you can retreat to. It's like you either get it done or you don't. And if you fuck it up or if something goes wrong, you die. There's a finality to it that doesn't exist elsewhere in society. Right. In a boxing match, chances are you'll come out alive. Yeah, yeah. In a football match, chances are you're going to come. If you lose, you're still going to come out ahead of the rest of society as far as payment goes. Um, in combat, when you fuck it up, uh, you die, or worse, you enable or, or, or you make a mistake where somebody else gets killed. And then probably worse than that is actually having to kill somebody else. Um, we don't realize that we actually have an aversion. There's probably 2% of people out there uh, on, on either end. One's a psychopath and, and, and one's just a, uh, what we call a sheepdog that are willing that, that, that killing other people doesn't bother them. One will do it for the good of society. The other one does it for the detriment of society. Most of the rest of us that end up in the military, we're kind of somewhere in between there where killing people, regardless of how well we're trained to do it, still bothers us. Uh, I don't know how we got, got into that. Uh, but it's, uh, it's interesting, though, because I don't know if... I've had conversations with guys who have been on this podcast off-air, and I don't know if you have, Jack. You know, I'm obviously not going to say who they are, but they were, like, very excited every time they killed someone. They've told me that. They, like, they loved it. I, they loved I mean, the I, th- I think a lot of them are full of shit, to tell you the truth. And this is in private conversations, yeah, yeah, you know, completely yeah. off-air. I, I would say they are. Unless for those 2%, uh, if you ever read David Grossman's book, he breaks it down into 2% on either end. The psychopaths and the guys that are actually trying to protect society. So maybe they were part of that 2%. Possibly, um, yeah. Possibly. I know for me, the first time we killed somebody, the first time, first time, let me put it this way, the first time I fired my weapon and there was somebody dead on the other end, uh, it, it bothered the shit out of me. I was trotting home. I thought, you know, somebody is going home tonight or somebody's going to come home tonight or dad's not going to come home tonight. That's the bottom line. There's going to be somebody eating alone and grieving tonight. And it bothered the shit out of me. Uh, the times after that, it really didn't bother me so much. But the first time, it did really uh, bother me. And, and, and that told me something about myself. That told me that I'm humane. It at least told me I'm not a psychopath uh, because it did bother me that bad. Yeah, the, the f- first time, or well, s- seeing terrorists killed never bothered me, to tell you the truth. Right. But seeing the civilians caught in the crossfire is something that really haunted me and still does to this day. Um, but yeah, I mean... 
in terms of learning something about yourself, I mean, that I was able to like just stand over bodies of dead terrorists and be like, fuck them. You know? Yeah, indeed. It's like, is there something broken inside of me that... Uh, Well, you know, so the next day after we killed this guy, I found out that he was covered with uh, uh, gunpowder residue. And I was like, fuck him. Yeah, fuck him. (laughs) It's kind of like Clint Eastwood uh, when he's in the outlaw Josie Wales when he uh, spits on the guy's forehead he's just killed and he essentially says, well, fuck him. Well, you know, we were both uniformed soldiers and we understood we go, go to a battlefield just like the bad guys. It, everyone knows someone's going home in a body bag. Like, there's no surprise there. Right. You know? Uh, and it better be him. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, <laughs> and that's why we train like we train. Uh, so when you watch somebody go from full brain matter to dead in a matter of seconds, it is, you find out something about yourself. Yeah. If, if you enjoy doing it, you're either one of those two. You're a psychopath or you're one of the sheep wolves that naturally protects society and doesn't do it. Most of us, I think, fall in that other range somewhere. It didn't really bother me to see the guys killed uh, that needed it. It did bother me to see the folks that it was questionable whether... And, and I think dead. a lot of those people who brag about killing people or, or talk about uh, how happy it made them to kill people are in a lot of ways camouflaging what's going on behind the scenes. I th- if you think they're full of shit and they never did it, or they are camouflaged. Or they're somewhere. cracking up with PTSD. They have a right. lot of residual problems, and this is a way to kind of keep people on the outside of that. I mean, as you know, though, there's there's guys, like I said, who have been on the show that you've personally interviewed that their book is, I have this many confirmed kills, and, and it's something that they are proud of. I, I think they're lying to themselves, to be honest with you, to say that, the, that they're proud of it, they're happy about it. I and mean, there's plenty of them. There's SEALs, there's Army Rangers who that's you know, a big part of their identity. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't read Chris Kyle's book. Um, I've read sections of it while standing in the PX. <laughs> uh, I saw the movie. I think at some point you could be trained well enough where it might not bother you, but it goes back to my thing. The first time it really bothered the shit out of me. Uh, other times it didn't, you know, uh, to see the bodies and that type of thing. But the, 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 especially the very first time is a shock. The other thing about combat the first combat, and you can attest to this, is not that bad. It's when you have to go out on patrol the next day uh, and the next day and the next day. Because, first of all, getting shot at is kind of exhilarating the first time. Uh, and then you either get used to it or it just bothers you every damn day. It bothered me every day. I was like, shit, I got to go out and get shot at today. And I had to get myself out of the rack, put on a happy face or some type of face, and go do it again. It's also the first time it's kind of a surprise, you know, Indeed. I, I, I talked to, uh, you know, we interviewed uh, Dale Comstock, who was on the Kurt Muse rescue mission in Panama in 89. And there are other accounts out there. You can read about the guys in Mangadishu in 1993. And they talk about how, like, when they were in the heat of it, they were just doing what they were trained to do. But then they come back and like they, they get back to the safe area and they're told, hey, you're going to have to go back out there. Like, we got guys missing. You know, we have a follow on mission. And then it's like oh, shit, I got to go back into that? And that's when you start getting, like, Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's hard. I mean, you're, you're scared, and you got to go back. But that's where the training kicks in. Um, particularly if you're leading uh, guys, you well, have to get... You got people looking at you. You got like, people looking at... I'll tell you what, the bravest I ever was in combat was when we took a lieutenant colonel on patrol with us one day. Suddenly, he was responsible for everything. <laughs> and I didn't give a shit about anything that day. I was like, okay, the, 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 the burden of being the senior guy 
on the spot was suddenly lifted from my shoulder. And that day, I was a brave son of a bitch. That's probably the one day, I mean, other than having to say, damn, I got to go do this again. Well, you know, it makes you brave, though, to have that burden on you because you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the men that you're in charge of. Right, and I tried to weave that into the book. I tried to show kind of the burden of... Uh, command. If you, I wasn't in command, I was a, I was a, I was an officer in charge of a mid team. And I tried to show that in the book. Anybody who's done it before will be able to to see that uh, in the book. And I, and I think once again, since I wrote it from personal experience, those who haven't can kind of read between the lines and kind of sense it uh, in the book. Uh, a, a buddy of mine read it and he, he told me it was entertaining. And, he, and he's been in command a couple times, which was actually a pretty good compliment because. I know my buddy, he would have tore my ass if there was a bunch of bullshit in there. So he said it was entertaining, which I was glad to hear that because I didn't write the book for uh, military personnel. I wrote the book for the general population. That's one of the reasons I kept the art piece in there. That's one of the reasons I tried to ask, answer the, or ask and then answer or allude to um, why man is fascinated with war. I put some mystery in there. Uh, I told a lot about the Iraqis. I tried to put it all that in there to make it palatable to uh, civilians uh, overall. So that's and, who I wrote the book for. And you wrote the book from the perspective of these two protagonists switching off. Uh, indeed, I did. So the first per, uh, half of the book is Major Clay Steerforth, United States Marine Corps. Then it switches to Lieutenant Colonel Abdul Majid, Iraqi Army. And then halfway to, through the book, they meet. And then they, they go on from there. And what's interesting about it, and, and this is this, some could, some could say I was innovative. Others could say I was just not that smart of a guy. Uh, the Majid part is written in the third person. The Major Clay Steerforth is written in the first person. So when they finally do meet, the reader kind of has a leg up on Steerforth. The reader knows who Majid is and what he's about. Steerforth meets him for the first time and knows nothing about him. So in the back of the reader's mind, he's like, I got something up on Steerforth because I know who Majid is. And when they, and it kind of, you know, kind of unfolds from there. Uh, but that's kind of something unique about the book. And also something unique about the book is I don't think anybody's written anything from the Iraqi point of view. If, if you wrote about the war, it was likely a memoir. And if, if it was a memoir, you told about the Iraqis or the Afghans or whoever it was. In this case, you actually hear the voice of an Iraqi officer, as essentially Colonel Majid uh, told me. I, I tried to recreate it as genuinely as I could, uh, made up a few things. But what you see in the character of Lieutenant Colonel Majid is from conversations between me and Majid. In the beginning of the book, it says I changed all the names. I didn't. I, I think it's great that you took some time in this book to humanize the Iraqi side and in this officer you worked with and to talk about your partnership because that is absolutely something that gets glossed over and forgotten and i mean we typically t uh, we being veterans have a tendency to write this you know these books and these works it's all about heroic american soldiers waving the flag but there's another there's another side to that and there were these people in iraq who were um you know they didn't get to go home they didn't rotate home in six months they lived there and they have to deal with that shit day in day out you know, we were critical, and I say we, but the Marine Corps, some of the units were very critical when I would say, hey, look, uh, they went on leave for two weeks. Well, how the fuck did they go on leave for two weeks? I'm like, well, they've been doing this for two years, and yeah. when we're back home, <laughs> we go on leave for two weeks. Uh, they, they just block leave for a bunch of them. A lot of the Marine units, possibly Army, weren't very sympathetic by that, about that. Uh, the 
and one of the things that gave me sympathy for them uh, was was a specific incident when somebody pointed at me one day and said, "You guys," and they were referring to me and the Iraqis. <laughs> this was another Marine, and I essentially said, "Hey, you see this ecoglobin anchor on my anchor on my left breast pocket? I'm one of you." I'm doing what the Marine Corps told me to do. No, uh, no, that's the Lawrence of Arabia effect. Well, right I never there. went native, but you're, you're exactly right. They thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. I'm not, oh, I'm Dave Richardson. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a major in the Marine Corps. I, 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 I'm not with them. I'm with you. I'm having to be over there training them. So you're right. It, it, and, and, but that's what partially gave me sympathy for them. Once again, I never went native, but I knew that they had their side of the story. And when we were, when all was said and done and we were gone, they were going to tell the story likely as if they won the victory themselves anyhow. So um, you might as well acknowledge that we worked and fought alongside each other. I don't think we've done a whole lot of that back in the States. Where is your Iraqi counterpart today, do you know? Somebody told me he died of throat cancer in Mosul. Really? Yeah. Uh, recently, uh, Chief Warrant Officer... Anthony Wierzbowski, who was on my team, went back a couple times after that, and he told me that Majid had died. Um, Majid was an interesting character uh, for many reasons, uh, but the Iraqi ch- chain of command wasn't that crazy about Majid because Majid essentially outshone them. I have, a th- I have a theory, which I put in the book, of why his men were so loyal to them, and indeed it had to do with money. Um, but he was kind of on the outs anyway. He left the army shortly after, and, and then he went to Mosul, and that's the last I heard of him, which, you know, it's kind of disappointing. I, I, I spent uh, essentially uh, four years of my life writing a book uh, about uh, me and Colonel Majid. And it's, 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 it's a novel, but it's essentially a biography. And to find out that he died, and, and I'll likely never see the guy again. It bothers me. Yeah, I mean that's sad. He, I mean, but he must have been a little bit older than me and you because he served in the Iran-Iraq War. At the time, he was about forty-five, forty-six, is when I met him. Uh, so I, I kind of put his timeline in the book. Uh, he would have been a lieutenant some somewhere nineteen eighty, probably. Uh, and he had been awarded for valor there. He told me that uh, in the in the Iran-Iraq War, uh, his valet or his. Batman or whatever you call him, <laughs> had been shot through the face, actually, wow. in Iran and Iraq, and he was missing teeth from it. Hussein, oh, he, he never, I don't think he ever shaved, walked around in a dirty T-shirt, cooked me fish all the time, and had uh, uh, wearing flip-flops and camis. I mean, you, so if you were a tight-ass Marine and you saw that, you were like, yeah. oh, my God, I, sh- I shouldn't, I got to go home. You know, I was like, hey, man, this is... It's Iraq. So I love those stories hearing from, from those guys. They, they would tell you, they'd sit down, they'd refer to it as... When I served with the previous regime, and like, right, oh, right, yeah. right. Yeah, I just call that the old Iraqi army. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, one of them had a story about he was uh, he was on a tank actually, like a T seventy two during the two thousand and three invasion, and they pulled their tank into a cave to hide because there were F sixteens just swooming all oh, overhead. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he was like, "That was the scariest night of my life because I thought you know a, a missile was just going to find its way right into the cave and destroy us." Um, the, the SWAT team commander I worked with also, he, uh, was in the Iran, Iraq war, the Gulf war, the 2003 war, and then with us. What's interesting about that is, uh, so 10 years, 15 years earlier, we were fighting them and they were on the other side and we would have killed them and they would have killed us. But there's something about two professional soldiers meeting. Yeah. No hard feelings. All that goes away. Oh, yeah. we were just trying to kill each other. Yeah. 
But now we're not trying to kill each other. We're working side by side. You know, it's kind of like the old John Wayne movie where he meets up. He's a Union soldier that fought at Shiloh, and he meets some Confederate guy, and suddenly they're, you know, they're working side by side, and miraculously they get along. Well, that's kind of how it is. Well, uh, delving deeper into like the whole metaphysics, I don't know if you get into it in your book or not, but do you think it's, there's something fucked up about how politicians – you know, they have this beef, so they send a bunch of, like, blue-collar professional soldiers to go and kill each other. When, like, maybe these politicians should just, like, you know, I don't know, throw fisticuffs. Yeah, maybe they <laughs> should go. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that would probably be a better solution. So, speaking of politics, that, that, that may be the reason that I did not bring that up in my book. Uh, if you read the prelude of the book, it talks about who goes to war in this country. Um, and it's, you know, there, there, there's a lot of different ethnic groups. The, the major one has been the Scots-Irish... Uh, Call them hillbillies, call them rednecks, call them white trash. Appalachian Americans. Appalachian Americans. We go to, <laughs> 70% of the uh, white people killed in Vietnam were Scots Irish. My point is, I kept the novel at that level. Uh, and this sounds probably kind of bad, and it's probably only in retrospect. I wasn't going to give the politicians uh, any. Uh, Recognition, whether it was grief or praise, I just took them out of the picture uh, and wrote the novel from our point of view. And realistically, I mean, you didn't give a shit when you were on the ground in Ramadi, right? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't care at all. I, yeah. I, I had a mission at hand. I knew we were under man, but I wasn't looking for the guy in Baghdad or Washington D.C. that was responsible for that. I had a I had a mission to do, just like Majid had a mission to do, and we were stuck with it whether we liked it or not, <laughs> uh, and we had to do it. So there was no use bitching about it or, you know, somehow, you know, writing home to, you know, the Washington Post and telling them how, you know, fucked up it is here. I never did any of that stuff. I just stuck with the mission as professional soldiers and, you know, guys that have been drafted and recruited or volunteered have been doing for a millennia. All the political stuff is a discussion for another arena. And that goes back to why man's fascinated with war. Man's not fascinated by, with, by war with, because of what poor or great decisions politicians made in war. Man is actually fascinated by war, by what the trooper, yeah. the Marine, the grunt, the guy from the 82nd, the ranger, you know, is doing on the ground. That's why they're fascinated by war. Yeah, they're fascinated by what the sergeants are out there doing. And, and like the generals almost become like a facsimile. That, that right. War is kind of written from the general's point of view. Yeah. I mean, uh, the history is kind of written from the general's point of view. Uh, but the fascination of war does, is, is not there. Uh, the fascination of war is actually with the foot soldier, uh, the artilleryman, uh, the pilot. Those guys are actually throwing the lead, titanium, or whatever have you, that, fragment grenade downrange. That's what we make the movies about. Yeah, yeah. You can get a movie. You can squeeze a movie out of MacArthur. You can't squeeze one out of Marshall. You can squeeze one out of Lee and Grant. It's hard to squeeze one out of Schwarzkopf. Yeah. Uh, but you can squeeze a movie easily out of Grant. Hopefully, somebody will squeeze a movie out of uh, your memoir and my novel. They kind of squeezed one out of McChrystal, but it wasn't favorable. Yeah, you know, I didn't see it because I, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. By the way, <laughs> I, I guess they did. The it was, uh, War Machine. It was War, a Net- Netflix film. Was it Brad Pitt? Yes. Yeah, I've started to watch it a couple of times. I like Brad Pitt. In fact, I watched Moneyball the other day, which I, I love Great Moneyball. Movie. Yeah, I'm not a sports fan, but I like Moneyball. Uh, so, yeah, and the, 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 the war movies that are worth watching uh, by the general public are, are the ones that are about the dude on the deck. Horse Soldiers, John Wayne and the Green Berets. Exactly. Uh, what, what are some of the ones that you like? 
So uh, my favorite war movie is probably Das Boat. Okay. Uh, because it shows the burden of command and it shows the commander making mistakes in command. Uh, of course, Full Metal Jacket. Classic. Um, Apocalypse Now, I can never watch it enough. Uh, I think I've been some of those places in various parts of the world. Yeah, it, it's not strictly realistic, you know, in air quotes, but it's a great film. I like it because it's literary. It's right, based right. on Joseph Conrad's, you know, Heart of Heart Darkness. Of darkness. Uh, I, I would say probably the best war movie made in the last 30 years, though, is... is um, other than the series Band of Brothers and Pacific, I'm talking about just a war movie, I got a hand to Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone fought in the Vietnam War, and then when they... I, I recently watched Platoon, uh, and I, I kind of had a hard time getting through it because it's so good. Platoon is a great movie. Uh, part of the greatness of the movie is due, by the way, to Dale Dye, who was uh, Stone's advisor, and he didn't let Stone take it down the track of, you know, we burned villages and killed people. Uh, he kind of kept it at a little higher level, but that movie... Platoon is a fantastic movie about war and the psychology of conflict within a unit. There's some of the con inner, inner, inner fighting in my book, and I drew some of that platoon, from Platoon. I drew some of it from uh, a movie called The Cross of Iron. And I read the book, uh, which is directed by Sam Peckinpah, who was, by the way, a Marine, and based on a book by a German soldier from World War II. I haven't seen it. Yeah, The Cross of Iron is an outstanding movie. You should watch it. It was one of the first movies where they you know, used slow motion when dudes were getting shot and that type of thing. It's a great movie. So I'd say Cross of Iron, Platoon, Apocalypse Now. Um, Paths of Glory is a good movie. Uh, that's Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I was just talking about that with a friend the other day, and I haven't seen it. I always wanted to. It's something i got to track that one down. Yeah, if Stanley Kubrick, probably the greatest filmmaker of all time. It's a World War I film, right? It's World yeah. War I. If you ever get a chance, watch Barry Lyndon. That's another fantastic one that shows uh, some 18th century warfare. So, yeah, those are, my, those are my big ones. But Das Boat is probably the best war movie I've ever seen. It's awesome. And it's nice. about sailors, by the way, uh, for all you squids out there. I, you know what I wanted to ask you about as well is being a martial arts instructor in the Marines. That has to be <laughs> its own story. So, you know, I will tell you, being a martial arts instructor, uh, uh, other than writing the novel, was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I had a couple of my buddies who were like, Richardson, you're 40 years old. What are you doing? I'm like, I, I've always wanted to do this. You know, because so we get, our, we get our belts, you know, uh, but I wanted to be an instructor. Uh, so at Camp Lejeune, I, I volunteered for this course. I went to the course, and the instructor was probably a 29-year-old staff sergeant, and I showed up. And he looked at me and he said, fuck, sir, how old are you? I said, I'm 40. And he goes, just don't have a heart attack on me because you've got some of these Marines by 20 years. You've got all of us by at least 10. And this is not like, th this is not going to be easy. It was 90 degrees out. Uh, we did an exercise one time, as I recount in the book, where I couldn't walk. I had to crawl out of the fighting pit. So it was tough. I'm glad I did it. And being an instructor, I was, did most of my instructing in, in Korea uh, was very, very satisfying. I loved being a Marine Corps martial arts instructor. What's your background in martial arts? Marine Corps martial arts. But it, no specific... No, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of finesse to Marine Corps martial arts, and you don't have to know any previous... Was it lines training back in the day? It used to be line training, but they advanced a lot. A guy named Lieutenant Colonel Shusko, who's still teaching down at Quantico, by the way, he's in charge of it. He was a... I don't want to misquote any of the things that he was. He was a Hokkaido guy. He was a jiu-jitsu guy. He was a karate guy. He put them all together. Marine Corps martial arts is, um, is uh, ground fighting, 
uh, and then it's stand-up fighting and it's weapons manipulations, you know, like how to retain your weapon, how to take a weapon from somebody. It's knife fighting, and it's also some philosophy. Uh, but I will tell you, it's violent, and it's not... Um, it's, it's, it teaches you how to break bones, and uh, it teaches you some lethal uh, maneuvers as well, and to put people down. It's, it, there's not a whole lot of finesse to it. It's rough. But it sounds right it. up Jim West's alley. Yeah. It's very effective. Uh, I, don't, I, I have no qualms about uh, walking down the street. Uh, somebody jumps on my back. I'll take care of it. You know, two guys. Up to three, I think I can handle it as long as they're not martial arts guys themselves. When it gets beyond three, I'm, I'm probably going to run. As an instructor, did, I mean, did you have a lot of, like, 20-year-old young Marines wanting to challenge you? Like, oh, I'm going to. Uh, no, because they were, that's the old dog. Marines learn quick, like the old fuckers got some shit that you don't know (laughs) no and and they didn't uh i actually had some marines tell me something uh they were in my class and we were in korea and they go hey so the shit works i'm like what are you talking about he goes well this weekend we were out in town and this and this happened and some soldiers jumped us and this happened i'm like okay we're not going to talk about that (laughs) (laughs) it just stays here but then the shit works so it does work um uh, and and it's brutal it's violent uh if you want to learn how to be a Marine Corps martial artist, uh, you either call me up or join the Marine Corps. They will teach you. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a good piece of gear to have uh, with you uh, when you're out and about, whether it's war or in the streets of Washington, D.C., New York, L.A., or anywhere else. The other thing I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't ask is, can you tell us a little bit about your art and your background as a painter? So my mother uh, was a painter, and she was a flower painter, and she painted, you know, she was a, she was a farm girl, and she painted... I have a rooster that she painted in my my uh, bedroom, and it's always going to be there till the day I die. So she was a painter, and she taught me color. Uh, she taught me how to stretch color, uh, uh, from your own personal color. She taught me composition, and she taught me grit. Uh, my mom painted every day, even if it was just a half hour, she'd go in there and paint. My brother was a painter. So it's not something I came to uh, in college or anything like that. I grew up around it. Uh, so it's kind of for like those folks who's parents golfed or went on a lot of vacations it's something you end up doing so i always kept it around i was doing it when i joined the marine corps i tried to quit it a couple of times and i never could <laughs> but the main my painting really really kicked off when i was an instructor or when i was teaching at fort sill and then i went to washington dc to be uh, uh an instructor at george washington university and i was accepted by a gallery there and i was painting these paintings about they're abstract paintings or near abstract about uh, their symbols, uh, they're, they're monuments to the characters in the uh, Trojan War. Uh, so they're somewhat abstract and you, you kind of got to feel it. It's kind of like reading between the lines of the paintings. My favorite paintings are the shotgun paintings. Uh, and I took that from the war, just like the cover of my book. I've taken a bunch of playing cards, painted it on uh, corrugated tin, and then shot it up with the shotgun my dad gave me when he died. And they're kind of cool uh, because I've backed him and that type of things. And recently, oddly enough, uh, I gave my girlfriend, uh, Stacy a uh, bouquet of roses for Valentine's Day. And I looked at those roses one day and I, I'm going to paint the roses. So I've been painting large uh, flower paintings recently, kind of after my mother. Uh, although it's not my mother's style, that's kind of what I'm doing. So that's, that's something I've done all my life. I do show my work. I do have a dealer and that type of thing. Are these oil paintings? Uh, primarily oil paintings. Of course, the ones I did in corrugated tin, I did a la Bansky with a, uh, a spray can. Of course, Bansky probably can't shoot a shotgun in London or wherever <laughs> he lives. He's a mysterious guy, uh, but I used a shotgun on that one. And I also work in acrylic now and then. 
That's awesome. I think it's Bangski, not Bansky. Yeah, Bangski. Yeah, it's Bangski. But yeah, uh, only if he had a shotgun, he would. He may be a greater artist. I actually think ba- Bansky is a great artist. By the way. Yeah. No, he's. I mean, it, what he does is so thought provoking. Bansky's interesting. Because I know for a while the high art world kind of shit on him. I think they've come around uh, because he is a fan- fantastic artist. There's other famous ones out there that I don't really think much of, uh, but Bangski's great. Um, there's a handful like Bangski who are popular with the public, and eventually the art world has to come around, gritting their or gritting and gnashing, gnashing their teeth and say, "Okay, we acquiesce. He actually is worth a shit." And Bangski's one of them because every collector wants their piece. So right, so they're kind yeah, of they, they were beaten into submission <laughs> by Bangski. Uh, only if I could, uh, I could team up with Bangski with my shotgun. I, I think that's kind of what I attempted to do. Should it just invent your own genre of shotgun art? I mean, you're on your way. Yeah, I'm trying. I, you know, I, I'm trying. I just, I just got to get it in the right hands. Like, I got to. You know, I need somebody like you to kind of say, "Yeah, this is what it is." You know, <laughs> uh, I, I need somebody to tell the backstory of it. So that's most of the thing with contemporary painting. You, know, you spend five minutes looking at the painting, then you know, two hours of somebody over dinner telling you about the backstory. Uh, I, I, want, I want to split it kind of half and half. I actually, people want. I want people to like want the painting hanging in their house, not in some insulation somewhere. Uh, and I want it to be accessible to them, and then that they can tell the bank the the backstory. They don't need you know somebody in the inside world to tell them inside art world to tell them the backstory. So is there another novel in you? Uh, yes, there is. So I, I've actually uh, I lost my computer. So if anybody finds my computer out there, it's got there's a, quarter, a draft on there. Yeah, there's a draft on there. It's a quarter of the novel with the outline. I lost <laughs> that it. That sucks. I, I lost and it. You on, didn't back um, it up anywhere. It's terrible. Well, I lost it somewhere between. Uh, Los Angeles, California, and Dulles in Washington, D.C. That's got to uh, be heartbreaking, man. Like, yeah, it was. So even... I restarted it about two weeks ago, uh, and I've written the outline, and I've got another, another novel in me, and probably two more after that. I've kind of got it planned out. Clay Steerforth comes back to the war, from the war. He gets out, uh, and then he starts working for DHS. That's the last place it's autobiographical, and then it goes off to imagination from there. There's a little conspiracy theory in there. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, dystopia. I love dystopia type of stuff. Uh, there's a little bit of a, uh, apocalyptic type things in there. So it's going to be an actual on. sequel to, to this book. It will. I, I got to keep the same. I'm going to keep the same guy. So, so you know, that's, that's kind of how... That's kind of how the dollars stack up. You know, you keep the same guy going and going and going. Uh, he'll probably get shot at a few times. I bet he's going to be the kind of guy that can kick your ass with martial arts. Never has to use a gun until it comes right down to it, you know, unless he meets another martial arts guy. But um, only uses revolvers because semi-autos are prone to jams. Exactly, yeah, that kind of stuff. I bet he's got chickens <laughs> in his yard in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, a couple of those type of things. He probably still smokes. Probably drink. He would probably is the kind of guy that would show up for an interview and drink whiskey while he's at the interview. <laughs> so, he's that kind of guy. He's probably got a hot girlfriend who trots along with, uh, to New York with him. So That's awesome. And, and a new painting as well for the sequel? Yeah, I'll figure out uh, whatever I'm working on at the time. It probably won't be flowers. I won't put flowers up. But it'll, be, it, it'll likely be something from the shotgun series because uh, I don't know if we have any gun enthusiasts there, but there's something. Yeah, there's definitely listeners who are. Yes. Okay, so yes, but sir. let me tell you something. Create something. Then go out and shoot it up with a shotgun. You'll like it even more, uh, especially if it's not that good to start with. Uh, the shotgun adds this, you know, I was talking about uh, you know, the, the randomness of a Jackson Pollock painting. Jackson Pollock didn't have shit on a 12-gauge shotgun. Well said, man. The last thing I have, uh, unless Jack has anything else, is you got to shout out the guys who listen to the show because you were telling me the reason that you reached out or published was 
publicist reached out is that a couple of guys that you know said you got to go on soft rep radio right Stephen van Ameren and kb henderson who i work with uh as soon as they, you know i was talking to them about getting the book published uh they're like hey man you got to go on soft rep radio you know they'll talk to you you know because you did some stuff in the military we're not sure what uh but you, <laughs> but you do talk about it randomly sometime and we thought you had Tourette syndrome but it's actually just you shooting out random shit so uh need to go on soft rep radio and talk to them about your book and uh and my publisher hooked me up, uh, John Bogdale, uh, before I had a chance to contact you all. So th- th- those are the dudes that uh, initial, initially introduced me to uh, your program. That's awesome, man. Well, really appreciate you coming on. This has been an awesome interview. Uh, for the listeners, your website is derichardson.com. On Twitter, at DRichWarStory. Anything else that you want to get out there, maybe for your art? Uh, you can probably get the book on Amazon, uh, Amazon, Google, um, Books a Million. Yeah, you, you can find just just Google Dave Richardson, Artist, Washington, D.C., or Dave Richardson, War Story, and you can get the book, or you can see the paintings. And you can also show up my house with a shotgun, and I'll take you along with me to make some art. <laughs> just don't point it at me. Excellent, man. This has been great. So pick up a war story. Really appreciate you having uh, coming in with us. Okay. Th- thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do it again when uh, the next book comes out. Okay. Uh, I'll try to make that within the next 12 months. Awesome having David in studio. Uh, and, I mean, beyond just his writing, really great artist just looking at his stuff. I mean, just the cover in general his, stands out. His girlfriend was showing me some pictures on uh, on her cell phone of his art. It's, it's really nice. Yeah, I, I haven't seen much more, so it's cool that you got a chance to check that all out, that she came in studio. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, just all around great dude, and uh, writing a book that's different than a lot of other books, and, and it's great to see. I mean, sometimes you feel like this uh, market gets saturated with all the veteran authors, but you realize a lot of them bring something totally new to the mm-hmm. table. So Absolutely. Uh, with that, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. Now, I've been a little out of the loop of uh, some of the changes over the site since I'll be leaving the podcast next week and have been busy with that. Uh, I don't know if you, you're familiar with this, Jack, because I was just checking out the site to make sure I'm up on uh, everything. But currently, we're just doing the Dash 1 crate. Uh, so we have that Dash 1 crate available at a seasonal or annual rate. Both of those options uh, are available at CrateClub.us, and right now we're running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all SoftRep Radio listeners. That's the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on that right now. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SoftRep, for 20% off our Dash 1 crate, either seasonally or annually. Sign up today. Once again, CrateClub.us, promo code SoftRep. Also, as a reminder for those who are listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com. And take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here. And Jack, it seems like we have a, a few different guys writing right now. Like, isn't Stavros... 
doing some stuff with us. What's the full current lineup, you would say? Stavros, uh, Greg Walker is going to be writing for us regularly, um, and myself, and uh, Nick Kaufman. Perfect. All right. So those are the guys that you're going to be seeing, uh, and also the guest writers who pop in. Unlimited access to NewsRep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $199. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com, where you can see the full archive of shows. As I said last show, since we had Vicky Bahena on, something like that old episode of Michael Bahena, that's up, episode 88. It was great talking to her, by the way. Uh, as always, keep up with us at Softrep Radio as well. Uh, with that, man, how was Europe? I, I didn't get a chance to ask you that. It was good. I was in London for uh, four days, uh, meeting with my wife, uh, and uh, she was doing the UK premiere of her documentary. Um, I am Which the is revolution. an excellent documentary. I am the revolution. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it went well. It was at the Italian Cultural Center, which is in the London's uh, version of Embassy Row. Actually, I was able to get a picture where the SAS uh, had hit the Iranian embassy back in 19, what, 1980, Operation Nimrod. Wow. Those like iconic photos, you know, of the SAS repelling down. And, uh, you know, we interviewed Rusty Furman, who was on that operation. That's right. And so I was able to get a picture of it, you know, just classic moments of counterterrorism history. I'm, I'm, I'm a military nerd, so I have to yeah, go and visit I, these As this audience knows. Pay pilgrimage. Awesome. But um, and, and anyway, there are two screenings of uh, Benny's documentary. Um, packed the place, uh, probably 230 people together. You know, nice. there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people showed up. When is this thing going to get a wide release? I mean, the enthusiasm is all there. The New York release was completely sold out. When somebody buys distribution rights. But it's just so funny, as, as we both said when the film had the New York premiere, it's like there's this big outcry for more women in film, more women directors, women producers, and then you have a film that is a, a film spotlighting women in combat, completely produced, directed, edited by women. Where is the financial backing for this? That's, uh, you know, I think Benny is a little mystified by that also. She's like, I don't understand why, you know, this isn't, well, how come it's not getting accepted into more film festivals? Like, is it a problem that technically the film isn't well made enough? Like, no, that's, that's not it. Is it something to do with the content? And um, I, I think... In my opinion, I think it's a couple of things. I think, one, it's, it's a cross-cultural movie um, because it features Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. That's a very hard sell to American audiences unless there's an American protagonist somewhere in there. Uh, and I think the other side of it is that um, American or Western sensibilities when it comes to feminism is very much... Um, I don't, I don't, in my opinion, just being real about it, I think it's very superficial. I think American feminism is kind of weak. Uh, feminism in the Middle East, these women you see in the documentary, is pretty strong all the way up to the point of women picking up Kalashnikovs and shooting motherfuckers. <laughs> so, you know, speaking about the, the YPJ uh, Kurdish militia, um, the female militia in, uh, in Syria that she spent time with. So it's a, it's a different... These are women in camouflage... Um, 
there are women who are challenging um, orthodoxy and, and challenging um, their governments in these countries. Um, you can see Salai, who is a secular politician in Afghanistan fighting for women's rights. And like one of the scenes in the documentary is Salai on a, on a news show with this like Taliban dude. And she's like giving him knife hands, <laughs> you know, like yelling at him. So I, I think, you know, like. And she receives like death threats for that all the time, yeah. all the time. She has to travel around with armed guards. So, I mean, American feminism in a lot of ways, it's like. Oh, look, here, you know, we're, it's about your individual identity, whereas this film and the women in the film are like, no, we are challenging the entire paradigm of how, how women are perceived, um, and exist in these societies. Uh, and I think, so I think that in the West we have, there's a certain way we're comfortable with you confront, confronting authority. And this film is much more confrontational than what Western audiences are used to. So I think that may be part of it. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. I think it should have a wide release. I mean, I would think at the very least get this thing on Netflix. Or- yeah, I mean, I, I, that would be amazing. Um, I, I would at least get it up on like Amazon, you know, where, so people can go and purchase it on there. But right now it's a question of securing distribution rights. Yeah, I got a lot of questions when I posted up the picture with Benny praising the film. A lot of our listeners said, yeah, how can we see can it? I see it? Yeah. yeah, that's what I hear all the time. And, and Benny has to be like, you can't. Yeah, you <laughs> Unless can't. you could come to the premiere in, you know, yeah. England or, you know. And you also got to meet uh, Vasilis, Bill. Yes. After years of working with Bill, um, working remotely because he's Greek, um, he uh, has immigrated to the U.K., and he has a, a, a decent uh, government job there. And so we both found ourselves in the U.K. at the same time, and uh, we were able to meet up. So he came, to, came down to London from where he lives, and uh, you know, we spent the day together. We uh, went out. We had, we had lunch, went out, had some beers, and then uh, went to uh, Benny's uh, mom's place and, uh, and had dinner. So it was great meeting him and his wife. It was amazing. As cool of a guy as you would have expected. Yeah, man. Yeah, really. Very smart guy, too. I'm really happy for him that he found, uh, you know, a steady good job because, you know, being Greek, I mean, they have a problem with employment there and he's a great guy, but his, like many, many other Greeks has struggled to find work over the years. Yeah. He's one of the few guys from the site I've never met, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. I he, still have to meet George Hand. I've never, I don't know if you've ever met George I've Hand. I've never met him in person. Yeah, he's one of the only guys yeah. I've never met in person. Because he's out in, uh, well, never mind, but he, he's out in, <laughs> he, he, he's out in uh, the Midwest or, yeah. or, you know, in the South somewhere. I feel like George is one of my biggest fans. Like, he, he constantly talks about the work I'm doing, and it's crazy to he's me. He's a great guy. The, the work he's doing is incredible with the, you know combating human trafficking I'm just a guy who produces <laughs> radio and stuff like that but he's done a lot of like really mind-blowing stuff so yeah no George has done some amazing stuff um, and Bill uh, I always joke that uh, he looks like the Taliban because he has this big like black beard and I, whenever he posts pictures of him and his wife I'm like well this poor girl has been kidnapped by the Taliban. The, the picture that he had up as a Facebook profile, it almost looked like, I, I'm not going to, it looked like a special ops porno movie as, as the, the picture of him with his gun. It's just very, uh, it's very stereotypical of that. I posted a picture of it when he was I'm talking gonna, about something I'm like gonna this. I'm going to go take it, a look. I don't remember. Yeah. I it. think that's his current profile picture. It, it, it was for a while. I'd have to, you know, find it if you search <laughs> through there. 
Yeah, but, I'll look for it. Yeah. He, I mean, from what I know and from his appearances on the podcast, he's just an all-around great dude. Yeah, no, he is. We, we, we'll have to try to have him on again sometime. Uh, all right. With that, I mean, I guess all that we have to plug is for those who still haven't picked it up, the book is out, Murphy's Law. If you have not bought Murphy's Law at this point, you're letting the communists and terrorists win. <laughs> all right. It's as simple as that, folks. We are hanging by a thread right now. No, I'm just kidding. All right, <laughs> this, this isn't uh, this isn't like Alex uh, Jones or yeah, Alex Jones or even mainstream news that's just trying to like terrify people all the time. Um, but the book is out. It's been out for about three weeks now, and um, I've been super happy to hear about um, hear all the responses and the reviews, and you know, it's really connected with people, and um, you know, even people who have listened to this podcast for years are like, man, I never knew all these stories. I didn't know you were involved in all this crazy stuff. So, um, it's out there. The audiobook is out there, which I narrate. So if you haven't picked it up, um, love it. If you grabbed a copy and if you have read it, uh, I really appreciate it. If you can drop a review on Amazon, you know, good, yeah. bad, indifferent, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, tell anyone how to review the book, but, um, reviews help, you know, and, uh, everything I've seen is five star as of right now hey man i mean just just tell write it tell it how it is you know and uh and, and it only takes a couple minutes you can throw up a review on amazon yeah it helps get the visibility up uh and a lot of you will be excited to know well, next episode we have a guy on who's been getting around in terms of podcasts and promotion i've seen him everywhere uh and i'm probably going to butcher his name because i haven't heard him say it but remy adeliki adeliki uh, former Navy SEAL from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Really interesting story. Became an extra in the Transformers movie. I'm, and, I'm excited to talk to him. I think he's going to have a really unique story to tell. Yeah. I shouldn't even say extra. I think he had a small role in Transformers. Um, smaller cool. role. But yeah, I've seen that he's doing a lot of podcasts and people are speaking really highly of him. So I'm Good excited him. to uh, talk to him. And that'll be my last week of shows. But uh, for those wondering, I mean, I'm, it's not out of the question that Jack and I will work on some outside stuff together or me do some podcast stuff again in the future. I'm just kind of walking away from this and uh, focusing on You mean our male over. prostitution ring? That I'm not doing. But uh, as I've mentioned, focusing more on voiceover and some other outside ventures. But it uh, doesn't mean that I'm you know, not going to continue to do stuff in this field. If the opportunity comes up, I'm absolutely open to it. So uh, awesome, man. Thanks again to David for coming in. Uh, thanks, Dennis who will be producing this whole uh, show. And uh, yeah, tune in next uh, episode, which will be up on Wednesday. Awesome. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.